0: I'm Katherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Katherine Zox show. Joining me today is author and physician Dr. Lara Goitine. Her new book is The ICU Guide for Families: Understanding Intensive Care and How You Can Support Your Loved One. More than 5 million patients are admitted to ICUs in the United States annually. Unfortunately, COVID-19 has only increased these numbers. Almost all of us will be touched by the ICU at some point, directly or indirectly. When your loved one is in the ICU, it's not only possible to be an advocate for your loved one, it's essential. However, from almost everyone, the ICU is an alien and intimidating world full of confusing equipment and terminology. Family members are in desperate need of explanations that busy nurses and doctors may not always have time to give. Lara Goitine, M.D., a Harvard-trained physician specializing in intensive care and lung medicine, shares with us some valuable information to help us navigate this uncharted territory. Dr. Goitine is an editorial board member and frequent writer for the medical journal JAMA, Internal Medicine, and also writes in the lay press, including the New York Review of Books. Welcome to the show, Dr. L- Lara Goitine nice to have you. Thank you so much. It's very nice to be here. I have to say your book is really the answer to the ICU. I mean, I've been seeing people in the ICU I've and as family members in the NICU. And uh, if I had your book before having to have those experiences, it would have been really helpful. This is a great book, by the way. Um, Oh, thank you so much, Catherine. Yeah, no, it really does the trick. And it says in the book, in the uh, in your preface, it goes: you wrote this for family members. Uh, This is for family members to help empower family members when they are, be or should be advocates for their critically ill loved ones. So there's the book is packed with all kinds of information. Let's start in the beginning. What what's the most important thing we need to know when a loved one goes to the ICU?
1: Well, in the very beginning, I think family members are just completely overwhelmed and in shock uh, they're of course terrified for their loved ones and really in desperate need of information. But the experience that many family members have initially is of waiting uh, often alone in a in a waiting room um, Um, not sure what's going on and how their loved one is doing, and that's incredibly uh, distressing uh, for families. Um, They may um, get progressively worried. They may get angry and distrustful because they can't understand why no one's talking to them and why they can't see their loved one. And I would just encourage people to understand that um, what's happening often during that time is that the ICU team is working very hard on stabilizing your loved one, and that means implementing the uh, treatments and the monitoring that's necessary to acutely get. The patient out of danger. Um, a good marker for this is stabilizing the vital signs. So um, getting the blood pressure into a safe range, the heart rate into a safe range, the oxygen level and the breathing into the into the safe range. Um, and so that stabilization can can take a while. It doesn't mean that the team uh, doesn't want to talk to you or isn't paying attention to your loved one. They very much are and hopefully, we'll come to talk to you just as soon as they have a, a chance uh, to update you.
0: Okay. So there, the team is stabilizing your loved one in the ICU. Um, and may I don't know whether it's necessary to talk about what brings you to the ICU. What kind of, uh, you know, what kind of illnesses or what kind of accidents or? Sure. Uh, you know. Sure. Because, yeah. You know.
1: There are many different uh, illnesses that can bring someone to the ICU. Um, they range from a uh, severe infection like a pneumonia or a urinary tract infection or, a, or appendicitis, um, a major surgery like a um, cardiac bypass or um, a uh, trauma like a car accident. All sorts of primary reasons can bring people to the ICU. The ICU is really a place um, where you can give more intensive monitoring and treatment that you, than you can give on a normal hospital floor. So there are many reasons to be there. There is a sort of a common pathway for many different types of critical illness um, with a few very common manifestations of critical illness that come to dominate a lot of the ICU care for patients. And those are things like ARDS, which people have heard a lot about um, in the context of COVID. ARDS stands for Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. And that's a a pattern of of, um, severe inflammation and injury to the lungs that can evolve with many different types of critical illness. Uh, It could be an infection actually in the lungs, for example, but it could also be a severe injury elsewhere in the body, like from a car accident that triggers ARDS. So sometimes the primary illness is treated um, quickly and effectively, and what you're left with dominating the ICU stay is some of the manifestations of critical illness that emerge in many different scenarios.
0: So I'm imagining in this COVID crisis, there have been many, many uh, more ICU admittances during the past couple of years, and that that has put obviously a strain on hospitals and also on families. Um, In the beginning, though, when somebody is admitted to the ICU and you're saying the doctors, the nurses, everybody is trying to stabilize the patient. So does the family stay out of that or, or, you know, or are they because they want to know what's happening and uh, but is it right for them to just refrain from trying to find out what happens, wait till the patient is stabilized and then go from there to get questions answered? Well,
1: I, I wouldn't say um, family members should abstain from trying yeah. to get answers. Um, they should certainly be checking in with the person at the front desk um, to find out, you know, when they'll be able to speak with the physician. But or the nurse, um, but, but sometimes there is a delay. Not in every case. Sometimes the patient is, is relatively stable coming in and just needs more close monitoring, and they'll be able to go fairly quickly to the bedside um, and to hear from the doctors and nurses. But for sicker patients that really require a lot of intensive work up front, there, there may be um, a wait
0: what do we need to know about the ICU? Because as you talk about in your book, it's a strange place. You've got the, you know, from respirators to tubes, to IVs, to all of those kinds of things. And you may not be prepared. You don't know what this, you, know, you can't ask a question about everything they're do, everything that they're doing. So what, how, what do we do besides reading? Obviously we should read your book because you really are very specific <laughs> about what everything that is needed. Um, I, but Maybe this is the question because I had experience with a a loved one being in the ICU uh, with COVID. And it it all turned out fine. That person is okay. Oh, Um, good. I'm so glad. Yeah. But the question was if they needed to use a ventilator. I didn't know what a ventilator was. I mean, I knew, but generally speaking. And that was a big conversation we had to have with the physician. What is it? The risk? Those kinds of things. Maybe that's something we can talk about because it's more common with COVID and COVID is here. Maybe here to stay. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you asked. I think the ventilator looms very large for people, both physically, it's a big, intimidating piece of equipment in the room, um, and also symbolically. You know, when people talk about, I wouldn't want to live on machines, um, that's what they're talking about. I think it's important to recognize that the ventilator is not in itself a treatment, exactly. Um, It doesn't make the lungs better, and for the most part, it doesn't make the lungs worse, although there's a couple of caveats to that that we can talk about. Um, It's really designed to take on some of the work of breathing for a patient who is not able to breathe uh, effectively on their own and buy them some time to receive the treatments that they need and for their own bodies to heal, really. So it's a, it's a time buying device. It is not in itself a treatment, uh, uh, and it does not in itself, um, uh, cause harm except for a couple of complications, uh, that can sometimes occur. So, um, you know, I think particularly in the setting of COVID, there was a lot of discussion about, well, patients don't do well on ventilators, almost as if ventilators could cause harm to patients, specifically, who, who had COVID. Um, and, and and that's not true. Uh, ventilators are a marker of the severity of the underlying disease, for sure. So it means you're pretty sick. Um, but it does not, being on a ventilator does not in itself hurt you. And if you need to be on a ventilator, um, you need to be on a ventilator. Um, I'll just briefly mention a couple of the complications. The ventilator pushes air into uh, the lungs, and um, sometimes, uh, particularly if not really done very meticulously, it can uh, cause Uh, some damage from that uh, increased uh, pressure in some of the alveoli in the lungs. Um, That's uh, called barotrauma, Um, and it can also be associated with Ventilator-associated pneumonia. That's when an infection develops in the lungs uh, because of some of the factors that come along with uh, being on a ventilator. Um, I'm, going you, a doctor, I'm going to stop you there yes, because I want to ask you, Doctor.
0: I'm going to stop you there because that's sorry, I'm those, probably those are getting good too points. technical. <laughs> no, yeah, it's a, a little technical, but and so I want to uh, because but it's important. The point that you're making, in the sense that yeah. it is technical, and so you're sitting there as a family member. Uh, and the doctor's telling us what you're telling us. And it's you have to make a decision. Does this person go on a ventilator? Should they go on a ventilator? Um, and yeah. how do you make those kinds of decisions as a layperson and maybe a very uninformed lay person? it's 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 pretty scary. And here's your loved one, whether it's your mother or your sister or your brother or your kid. And um, so there's the tendency right. to just, yeah, that's the question.
1: Yeah. And often uh, this question comes up at, um, at either end of the ICU admission. So there's a the question of whether initially to put somebody on a ventilator. And there is the question of um, whether at some point it might be time to withdraw life support if a patient is not uh, recovering well. So um these are very big difficult uh, conversations and really need to be individualized both in terms of what's going on medically with the patient um and also in terms of that patient's values um what they think um, a meaningful life or a meaningful quality of life would be, and their thoughts about um, how and when they are ready to die. So very individualized, difficult questions. I'll say that sometimes the decision about going on a ventilator is lumped together with the decision, decision about restarting the heart in the case of cardiac arrest, and together that's called code status. Um, And this is the question that often comes up early in admission, if a patient wants, or if the family thinks a patient should be what's called DNR, DNI, that's do not resuscitate, do not intubate. and this is a, a tough decision because obviously if a patient needs their heart and lungs restarted, then that means that without doing that, you're allowing them to pass away. So this is a difficult decision, and it needs to be made on an individual basis. I'll say that lumping the two together um, is not always appropriate. So a cardiac arrest um, pretends a pretty poor prognosis generally about one in five people will survive an in-hospital cardiac arrest to um, hospital discharge. But a ventilator can mean very different things depending on how sick the person is. And so, for example, um, you know, people are routinely put on a ventilator briefly for elective surgeries Um, in other cases, a ventilator um, can be needed because there's a um, much more serious uh, prognosis. And in that case, particularly if the patient is very elderly or has a terminal illness or, or for whatever reason is ready to let go, um, then it may not be appropriate. So again, these are very individualized decisions that need to be made with the help of um, uh, an, an ICU physician.
0: I think those obviously are difficult decisions. And I think having seen many people, you know, family, friends, and and as as a social worker, like sometimes the question becomes, and this is maybe not the thing to say, but you're the physician. I mean, how long do you torture somebody? And I use the word torture because I've seen people in hospital kind of being tortured when you know that the end result is not going to be a good one. Um, But you're extending the person's life one more month two more months but that's about it and so right. the yeah so the word torture comes <laughs> to mind maybe not exactly. a good one yeah
1: <laughs> yeah well i mean you're you're absolutely right so um this is these are very difficult decisions for people but The truth is that with the technology that we have now, we basically have the ability to do the work of um, the heart, the lungs, and the kidneys with machines and medications. We're really able to keep almost anyone alive alive. Uh, technically, long past the point where um, they're able to return to a reasonable function or, or quality of life, and no one wants that for the, their loved ones. So actually, um, of all of the deaths that happen in the ICU, most of them, about 65% of them, happen only after the family has made the decision uh, that it's time to withdraw life su- life support. So we very we um, more rarely lose people despite a full court a full court press. So these decisions are very common, and they're very necessary. At some point, the question becomes not whether someone will die, but uh, how they will die. And. You know, those are very loving and courageous and necessary decisions on the part of, of family members.
0: I think one of the difficulties are, and this is from a social work perspective, not everyone agrees what to do. And if somebody hasn't actually written out or doesn't have a health care directive, that can be an issue. You know, one, one family member wants to, well, let's talk about the end. You're saying like discontinuing the the. Uh, the ventilator or, or the machines that are keeping this person alive. And there's a big disagreement among family members. How do you deal with that?
1: Yeah. In, in, in my experience, those disagreements often come from some sort of failure of communication, either between the doctor and the families or the family members. Um, when people really fully have uh, the information before them, and they um, they love and know the the patient, usually I find that there um, is eventually agreement. Um, sometimes there are you know personal issues that prevent someone from thinking clearly about a situation, but in my experience, with enough communication. Everyone wants the best for their loved one, and and you get to a place of agreement.
0: You know, you talk about in the book that after a loved one um, has died, or maybe not even if not necessarily died, but had an experience in the ICU, and it's very traumatic. That uh, uh, that families and 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 the person themselves uh, suffer from PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. That that's a real possibility.
1: Absolutely. So, we know that ICU stays are traumatic, obviously, for the patients, and um, many of them have a prolonged course after the ICU. Um, There is something called the post-intensive care syndrome, PICS, and that refers to the constellation of um, cognitive, psychiatric, and physical symptoms that can persist for many months or even years after an ICU illness. And about half of ICU patients experience some degree of, of that, more so if they've been extremely um, sick in the ICU. Um, so, you know, that's very common. And a big part of that are psychiatric manifestations like depression, um Anxiety, sleep disturbance, and post-traumatic stress disorder. But family members also experience quite a high degree of those psychiatric manifestations, and um, and particularly uh, PTSD. And this is even more so, unfortunately, in family members who are involved in making these very difficult uh, decisions about end-of-life care. And I think that's such a shame uh, because those decisions, um, when when you make a decision to withdraw life support, that is such a, uh, a brave and wonderful and courageous thing to do for your loved one. I, I feel terrible that it leaves um, many people so... Um, so so gutted um, and um, having such a difficult time uh, thinking in retrospect about it.
0: Well, I think some of this can be prevented. Maybe we're going full circle because we don't have that much time left, but your book sort of I think it would help to maybe mitigate some of these of feelings, because if you read the book, the ICU guide for families, you really have all this information, and once you, that does empower you, and it kind of, you know, you, so you're making decisions and you're going through the whole process, having all the information, and so you're not just kind of stunned at the end, making decisions that you weren't prepared for. But um, it, I think the the book is really helpful for that. I mean. Um, And I think I said that in the beginning, but now I'm saying it at the end because it's really true.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. That was really one of my two goals. The first was to just provide these explanations that family members so desperately need. But the second was really to show people what a central role that they have to play as family members and to help combat that terrible feeling of helplessness where you feel like you have no choice but just to be – have.